Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called God Is. In this series, we're learning who God is and how he wants to relate to us. Thanks for joining us. There's an author named Paul Dixon who wrote a book and it's entitled, What's in a Name? And in that book, he shares some of the most unusual names he's come across. I mean, this was his research project. He looked for unusual names around the world. And so he came up with a few of them that I'll share with you this morning. Uh, one name that he found was Cletus Clodfelter. Cletus Clodfelter. Another name was Rotten Earp. Somebody named their kid Rotten. Rotten Earp. Jingle Bells Kaplan. Lord have mercy. Jingle Bells Kaplan, and Boomfa Umfumpa. <laughs> he also did research on people destined to certain occupations by their name. And so he found that Joe Bunt became a baseball coach. He found that Dan Druff became a barber. And he found that two guys, get this, with the last name of Goforth and Ketchum became partners in the police force. <laughs> he also found his favorite was a plaster contractor named Will Crumble. <laughs> he asked this question over and over and over. What's in a name? What's in a name? What's in a name? Well, God says there's a great deal of importance in a name, especially when it's his name. And so this summer, we're studying the names of God found in the Bible. And last week, Steve kicked off the series with teaching on Yahweh, the personal name of God. Amazing message. I encourage you to listen. You can go online and watch the video or listen to the audio of that. And the reason we're spending the summer studying these names of God is because if you're following in your notes, the names of God help us know who God is and how he wants to relate to us. They help us know who he is and how he wants to relate to us. And today, we come to the name of God, El Roy, the God who sees me. The reason this is so important for us is because most of us, I'm just going to take a guess in a room this size, that most of us have felt abandoned by God at one point or another. We have felt alone and we've wondered things. We've asked questions like, where is God in all of this? Does he even care? Or what about the question, either God doesn't care about my situation or he's incapable of doing anything about it. One of the biggest lies we can believe in this life is that we're alone. And the story we're going to look at today is the only place where God is called Elroy. And it's imperative that we know this name of God and how he relates to us in this way. The God who sees me. So to understand this name, we're, we're going to open to Genesis 16. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you, open your Bibles to Genesis 16 right at the front of your Bible. First book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. I encourage you to take one of those out. Genesis chapter 16 is found on page 11 of those Bibles. Page 11. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But this is, this is such a good story. There's so many details in it. I think it would benefit you to have a copy of God's Word sitting in front of you that you can mark up, take notes, circle whatever God might be saying to you. 
Genesis chapter 16. And as we get settled there, I want to set up for you where we are in the Bible. We're, We're in the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. Genesis actually means beginnings. So we're taken to the beginning of the world in Genesis 1, and then after the creation story, we're introduced to different people who heard directly from God. So you have Adam and Eve, you have Noah, and then you come to a husband and wife named Abram and Sarai. Now, their names are later changed to what we're more familiar with, Abraham and Sarah. So just for confusion's sake, I'm going to say Abraham and Sarah all morning. And the story we're going to look at today has four main characters. I'll address three of them now, and then we'll come to the fourth character when we get to verse 7. And so as we're setting up this story, the first characters that we come across are Abraham and Sarah. And if you're following in your notes, what we need to know about them is that they are parents of the promise. They're parents of the promise. We first read of Abraham in Genesis 11, and he is chosen by God. He's the one chosen by God to be the father of many nations. And then in Genesis 12, God affirms this unbreakable covenant and unbreakable promise that from Abraham would come the Savior of the world, Jesus, the Messiah. God confirmed this covenant again with Abraham in Genesis 15, just one chapter before our story today. And I want to put this on the screen because these are the words that Abraham heard before our story picks up. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This is God speaking to Abraham. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Unbreakable covenant, unbreakable promise. You're going to have a son and he's going to start the family line that the savior of the world will come from. The only problem is that now 10 years have gone by and there's still no baby. 10 years. They've been waiting. Sarah is about 76 years old at this point. She knows she's past childbearing years. And I think Sarah has trusted God. I think she has. She's believed the promise, but it was getting hard to trust after waiting for 10 years. And I wonder if she felt abandoned by God. I wonder if this infertility was devastating, it caused despair and grief. And I wonder if there was any part of her, right? We're just trying to understand what's going on here. If there's any part of her that she felt like she had let Abraham down or her family down or her culture down or let God down or the world down, right? If she's supposed to be the mom who the savior of the world will come through and there's no baby after 10 years, at some point she's probably starting to get a little desperate. And that's the context into which our story begins today. 
If you're following along with me in your notes, would you read the first gray box in your notes? It's verse 1 and 2, and then I will continue reading to 3 and 4. It says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. I'll continue. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. There's a Bible teacher named Beth Moore who says this about what we just read. She says, as weird as this is to us, And as wrong as this is to us, and as wrong as it should be to us, and as wrong as it would have been to them, it was a part of their culture that is impossible for us to understand. It was a universal happening because having children to continue the family line was the greatest blessing one could have. And so this was common practice in the ancient world, as weird and messed up as that sounds to us today. And you may have questions swirling in your mind right now about how wrong that is. And here's my prayer. I pray that this background does not create a barrier to the main point of the story. I want you to hear this. There's no place in the Bible, there's no place in the Bible where God condones this. God doesn't say, go do this. He doesn't condone slavery. He doesn't condone polygamy. And whenever the Bible describes experiences like this, it's a disaster. It's a disaster here. This sin that we're going to read about today will go on to cause division, strife, jealousy, and bloodshed for thousands of years, even continuing today. What the culture was doing and what Abraham and Sarah were doing were not instructed and encouraged by God. So Sarah told Abraham to take her slave, marry her, and try to have children with her. Enter our third character, Hagar. Hagar was an Egyptian slave of Sarah. She was probably one of the maidservants given to Sarah when Abraham and Sarah traveled to Egypt in Genesis 12. She's not an important person. She's not wealthy. She was probably abandoned or orphaned by her father and mother and sold into slavery at a young age. In fact, her only claim to fame is she ended up in the middle of this big, ugly mess. Her story is not pretty. And in verse 4, if you're following in your Bibles, we read, When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So she got pregnant. She begins to despise Sarah. Hebrew is a graphic and concrete language. So it literally says, Sarah looked little to her. Sarah looked little in her eyes. Sarah, the ruler, now looked below her. And Hagar began to get arrogant, and Sarah notices. And verse 5 tells us, Then Sarah said to Abraham, Sarah noticed this, right? She said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. I mean, this is seriously like the Downton Abbey of the Old Testament. It is a complete mess. 
And there are several things I want us to notice together about these verses. One, there's, there's just a victim mentality taking place. Tons of blaming going on with no responsibility being taken. If you go back to verse 2, Sarah says, God did this to me. Verse 5, she says, Abraham, you did it to me. Sarah was saying, I know there's a promise here, but God's not going to fulfill it. And look what you've done to me, Abraham. To which Abraham retorts back, you do whatever you want. I'm out. I'm out. She's your slave. This isn't my problem. This is your mess. Tons of blaming, no responsibility. The second thing to notice, and this has gone down through the ages, this is like a replay of Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. I mean, they're shifting, hiding, blame shifting, hiding, fleeing. Both stories deal with people who don't trust God's word. They both thought that God needed help in fulfilling his promise. And they took matters into their own hands. They didn't trust. They grasped for control. Instant replay of the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's, we still do it today. It's come down to us. And so after Abraham checks out in verse 6, we're told Sarah mistreated Hagar and she fled. Now, we don't know what mistreated means, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility to think it means emotional, verbal, and physical abuse. All we know is it was so bad that a pregnant woman fled to the desert to get away. And so I want to spend just a few minutes here talking about Hagar and growing our imagination of where she was and how she felt because the rest of the story focuses on her. She embodies her name. If you're following in your notes, her name means flight or stranger. Her name means flight or stranger. Remember, she's an immigrant from Egypt. She's a stranger living in a strange land, and she probably already struggles with a sense of belonging and attachment. She's running away from a household where her body has been used to produce offspring for an infertile couple. She's mistreated and trapped in a system where she feels as though she is invisible. She has no rights, no dignity, no freedom, and she's had enough. If you're following in your notes, Hagar felt like a nobody with no name. She was not seen or heard. She was a nobody with no name. If you read this story again, pay attention to the fact that Abraham and Sarah never call her by her name. They call her slave, maid, Egyptian. They didn't see her as a person. She was there to serve a purpose. I wonder if they even noticed that she ran away. Hagar had this great need And I don't even think she realized what her greatest need was until she met the God who met that need. If you're following in your notes, Hagar's greatest need was to be seen. That was her greatest need. It was to be seen. Our story continues in verse 7. So that's Hagar. That's her emotional state. That's how she feels right now. That's her identity. And in verse 7, would you read this with me in the second gray box on your notes? It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Our fourth character now appears. It's the angel of the Lord. Literally, the angel of Yahweh. 
Steve spoke about this angel of the Lord last week. And much has been written about this, but after studying this, I do believe the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. If you're following in your notes, the angel of the Lord is God in human form. It's God in human form. Hagar is speaking with God. I want to put a map on the screen for you so you can see where Hagar is. She's about 70 miles away from where she started out, near a spring in the desert on the road to Shur. She's been on the road at least a week, traveling through inhospitable territory, pregnant and alone. I show you that because I just want you to see she is in the middle of nowhere. She is lost in the middle of nowhere. And if you're following on your notes, God sought out and found Hagar the stranger. God sought out and found Hagar. The Lord found her. Throughout the Bible, there's only one reason why we're told God finds people. Do you know what it is? God finds people so we can find him. He finds people so we can find him. We see this in Jesus. I want to give you one example. I love this story in the Gospel of John. It's in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 45. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Did you see all the founds? Jesus found Philip, Philip found Nathanael, and he said to Nathanael, we found Jesus. Jesus came to earth to find people. And he's still seeking people out, and he's finding them today. So if you are here, and you think you're too far from God, that he wouldn't want anything to do with you, that is a lie, and I am praying you don't believe that lie. Jesus is seeking you out, and when he finds you, he finds you so you can find him. And if you are a believer here, then I want you to know that he initiated the relationship and we're responding back to him. Everything initiates with God. The only reason we ever found Jesus is because he found us first. God is in the people finding business. And in this story, God sought out and he found Hagar. Let's keep going. Verse 8, you can follow in your Bibles. And he said, this is the angel of the Lord talking, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? If you're following in your notes, we've got to see this. God called her by name. He calls her Hagar. How long had it been since she had heard her name? How long? The, the Lord not only knows her name, he knows her station in life. He knows she's a slave. He knows her struggles. He knows she's treated poorly. He knows her. And he asks her two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? God's always asking questions. Jesus always asks questions. But the thing with God is he already knows the answer. He's not asking to get information. He's asking a question so that we'll name reality and know that we need him. 
And so God asks her, where have you been and where are you going? God wants Hagar to name the hopelessness of her situation left to herself. And in verse 9, we read again, The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. If you're following in your notes, God challenged Hagar to submit and blessed her with a promise. God challenged Hagar to submit and blessed her with a promise. And so as I read that this week, that that bothered me. Like, how in the world would God ask Hagar to go back into a situation where she was mistreated so badly? I mean, if we know God is a God of mercy, he's a God of kindness, he's a God of justice, how could he ask her to go back? And as I asked that question, I began to wonder, perhaps in this instance, telling Hagar to go back was merciful. The trajectory of her life was headed for a dead end. She's a fugitive slave in a desert, pregnant and alone. At best, she's never going to settle down. She'll always be looking over her shoulder. At the worst, she's going to be caught and killed with no future and no descendants. Perhaps God is being merciful to challenge her to go back so the promise can be fulfilled. But let me pause here for a moment. This needs to be said. If you are in an abusive relationship, I pray you do not hear me saying you need to go back and submit to someone who abuses you. That is not what this story is teaching. This story is descriptive of God working in this context. This story is not prescriptive in that he wants people to go back to dangerous situations and submit to people who abuse them and treat them badly. If you're in a relationship like that right now, I pray you would ask for help and reach out. That, that is not, God does not want you to submit to that abuse. Now, what I do think is universal, though, what I do think is universal teaching from this story is that many times we don't want to submit and do the hard thing. And I'm not talking about abusive or dangerous situations. I'm just talking about situations that are challenging. And so, for example, we leave the job because it's hard, or we continue leaving jobs as a pattern because things just get hard. We leave a relationship because it's challenging. We want to pull our child from a classroom or a sports team because everything isn't going the way we want it to go. We bypass the difficult conversation for fear of what someone might think about us. We avoid someone because we don't want to say we're sorry. We may not want to serve somewhere because it costs us our time and we're serving people that are different than us. We don't encourage, challenge, or instruct our kids because it's easier and quicker to call them out or to check out, or to hang out. You can probably think of more examples. But so often, so often we want to flee and short-circuit the work God wants to do in us. Perhaps God wants us to do the hard things because that's where we'll find the answer to the question, do we trust him? Hagar would not have seen the Lord if it wasn't for this trial. God often uses trials to reveal a fresh vision of himself, which we would have missed if it wasn't for that situation. So is there anything in your life that you want to flee from right now? It's hard. 
It's challenging, and you want to flee, but the Lord wants you to submit and go back, and he wants you to work on it. I don't know what that might be for you. For Hagar, it was to go back and submit. But the God, gave, God gave her a promise to hold on to. If you look at verse 10 again in your Bibles, God said, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. God gave her a promise to hold on to. In this culture, I've already said this, right? The greatest dream of any man or woman would be to have descendants. And this is a promise that Hagar can hide in her heart and it sustains her. God is saying to Hagar, I'm going to give you more than you ever dared ask or think. But the way to get it is by going back. You've got to go back. And that's because if you're following in your notes, blessing lies on the other side of obedience. Blessing lies on the other side of obedience. I asked the Lord this week, um, God, would you give me some examples of where this has played out in my life? And he, he brought three things to mind because I want us to see it's not always this gigantic story like we're looking at today. I mean, we're looking at a pretty big story. And I, I just thought, you know, in my life, it's, um, it's being obedient to forgiving someone, even if they don't apologize. And the blessing on the other side of that is that I'm not carrying around the weight and bitterness and resentment. There's a blessing on the other side of obedience. I, I thought of another one of um, apologizing to my wife and kids when I mess up. Right? I mean, there's commands in the Bible to love one another, outdo one another, and showing each other honor, forgive one another. But I don't always want to do that. But when I do go back and do that, and I go back and do the hard thing, there's a blessing on the other side of it, and it's that a right relationship can be restored. There's a blessing on the other side of obedience. Uh, this past winter, Sarah, uh, right before the end of the year, she, she came up and she goes, I think we should... Uh, give to some ministries that we could see God work in before the year's over. And uh, I'd love to say my first response to that was, let's sit down and see how much money we can give away. Uh, but it wasn't. And so that was hard for me. And we sat down and talked about it. God wants us to be active and involved in what he's doing in his kingdom work. And we sat down and we brought the boys into it. And we said, hey, what ministries do you know about? What do you want to give to? And we were able to give some money. And the blessing on the other side of obedience is that we got to participate in God's kingdom work. And the name of Jesus can be furthered. And so it's not always gigantic, but blessing lies on the other side of obedience. And that's really hard. It's really hard. And we need to hold on to the promise to get us through. We don't like the word submit and we say things like, Lord, you don't know how hard this is. You don't know how bad it is. This is what we say. Give me the blessing first and then I'll submit. Give me the blessing and I'll submit. But obedience always comes before blessing. And we can read, if you go further into Genesis, Genesis 21, Hagar did go back and she gave birth to her son and he was the father of many descendants. God kept his promise. It went terrible. I mean, it, it was horrible, and it still is. But God kept his promise to give her descendants. 
And in verse 11, if you're following in your Bibles, we come to the third time in our story that a verse begins with the phrase, the angel of the Lord said to her. And so in verse 11, the angel of the Lord said, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. It went down that way. That's how it went. God expands the promise and said to Hagar, you will have a baby and you'll name him Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears. She was to name him Ishmael because in verse 11, we're told that God heard her misery. And every time she said her son's name, every time she sang him to sleep at night, Anytime she said his full name, like every mom in the history of the world has said to their son, she would recall God's intervention that he heard her. And I want to point out in verse 11, I found this so interesting. If you're following in your notes, God heard her misery. Other translations say he heard her distress, affliction, or painful groans. This is what's fascinating about that. God didn't hear her prayer. He heard her misery and her distress, and that comforts me because the angel doesn't say, you know what, Hagar, you were praying so well that I came to help you. And he didn't say, you were living such a good life that I came to see you and hear you. God has such a heart that our very pain and distress cry out to him. He hears it, and he comes. And in response to God seeing Hagar and hearing her, she responded with this. Would you read this with me in the third grade box in your notes? It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God saw Hagar and Hagar saw God. God found Hagar, and Hagar found God. And when she realized that God had seen her, she responded by acknowledging that she had been seen. She said, if you're following your notes, you are El Roy. El Roy, the God who sees me. If you remember earlier, we said Hagar's greatest need in life was to be seen. And she names God El Roy, the God who sees me. God gave Hagar exactly what she needed, and it changed the trajectory of her life. It changed everything. Hagar met the Lord, and she now has a new identity. She used to be the slave, the immigrant, the runaway, the foreigner, the outsider. Look here. She calls herself now the one who has been seen by God. It's a complete new identity. And this new identity empowered her to submit to the Lord and go back and fulfill the will of God. It empowered her. The name of God is so important for us because if you're following your notes, recognizing God as El Roy can change our identity and our future. It can change our identity and our future. Listen, we all have a fundamental need to be seen. It's why our kids say all the time, watch me, mommy. Watch me, daddy. 
There are times when I'm on my phone at home and my three-year-old comes up to me and he takes my hand in his face and he goes, look at me, daddy. Look at me. He wants to be seen. There's this great quote. You don't really understand human nature unless you know why a child on a merry-go-round will wave at his parents every time around and why his parents will always wave back. We need to be seen. But that leads to the question, why? Why do we need to be seen? Why is that important? Why do we long for a God who sees? And what difference does that make? And the answer is that it makes all the difference in the world because to be seen is to belong. To be seen is to belong. And it means we're significant. And it means we matter. And it means our lives have purpose and meaning. To be seen means that we are known and that a good God knows who we are and what we need. If you're following in your notes, to be seen creates belonging, significance, and safety. That's the power of being seen by God. I wonder what would happen if we all could say, you are Elroy. You're the God who sees me. What would we leave behind in our past that holds us in bondage? What lies do we believe about not belonging, about not being significant, about not being safe. What future could we step into and how might God want to use us for the kingdom if, he, if we knew he saw us and provided for our greatest need? It could change everything. Our futures and our identities it could change everything. And today we want everyone to have an opportunity to know this God named Elroy, the God who sees. And we, we sensed there, there are a number of people here who need to be reminded of their identity in Christ. So we're going to close the services today by taking some time to identify if we've ever felt like Hagar. I'll say it again. We're spending time this summer learning the names of God because maybe our greatest need is found in one of his names. And for some of you here, your greatest need is to be seen. So I want to invite you to put your notes away. Close your Bibles. We have time here. We've scheduled that in. I invite you to sit back. Pray you could take a posture of surrender. Humility. Maybe it would do you well to let your shoulders relax, take several deep breaths. And hear this good news. And as I read this, I, I want you to know I'm reading this to myself. I, I need this. I found myself at each of these situations in my life at some point. If you have ever felt unseen, unheard, or unloved, if you have ever felt like Hagar, a nobody with a no name, and you don't feel like you belong, 
I bless you in the name of Jesus, that you would believe that before he formed you in your mother's womb, he saw you, that his eyes saw your unformed body, that he knew all of your days before one of them came to be. He knows you. He knows when you sit and when you rise. When the righteous cry out, the Lord hears them and he delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I bless you to know that the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He takes delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. You are seen and heard and loved. If you are here, and in your past, you've suffered trauma and abuse that you have carried forward to today. And for you, it's actually more safe to hide than it is to be seen. You feel like you're trapped in a cave and the stone guarding the door won't budge. And if you're honest, sometimes you don't want the stone to move because it's safe and comfortable. But you're lonely and you want more and you need to be seen. I bless you in the name of Jesus to know that the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but Jesus came to give us life abundantly. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I pray you hear the words of the Lord, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I pray you hear the words of Jesus, the same words he spoke to his friend Lazarus. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in headcloth, and Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Today, come out of the tomb and be seen by Jesus. I pray you will have the full measure of joy that Jesus brings, knowing you are seen, you belong, you're significant, and it's safe. If you have ever felt like you needed to perform to be seen, that you needed to achieve to earn the love of God. If you ever felt like you were unworthy to be loved, if you have ever felt like other people and God love you for what you do, not who you are, I bless you in the name of Jesus to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I bless you to know that you are loved for who you are, not what you do. God created you because he loves you and he loves what he created. I bless you to know you don't need to earn anything, that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared in advance so that you could walk in them. 
I pray that you can work from a place of resting in Christ rather than striving to earn the favor and love of God. You don't need to perform anymore to be seen. You are seen. If you're a follower of Jesus and your life is a mess, either by your own making or things that have been done to you or happened to you, and you're in a place this morning where you feel abandoned by God, I bless you in the name of Jesus to know there is no problem too big for God. You will never hear him say, I can't see any solution to this. God knows exactly who you are and what you're going through, and he knows what you need. No matter how ugly or complicated or hopeless your situation seems, remember that God sees you. The Lord will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you, and he is waiting to be wanted by you. I pray that you would call on the name of the Lord, and he will answer you. You can cry for help, and he will say, here I am. I pray that you will have the confidence to ask anything according to his will and know that he hears you. He can redeem your life from the pit and crown you with love and compassion. He has not abandoned you. You are seen. Lastly, if you are not a follower of Jesus, and you feel like you are too far from the reach of God. You feel like there's no way God would want anything to do with you. He doesn't want to see you. You're interested in Jesus, something stirring in you, but your shame keeps him at a distance because you think he wouldn't want to see you. I bless you in the name of Jesus that you would know that he saves and forgives people because he loves them and he loves you. You don't have to be a stranger anymore. As many as received him, Jesus gave the right to become a child of God for those who believe in his name. I pray that you would know that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins from us. And just like Hagar, listen, listen, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that just like Hagar, you would do a U-turn in the desert. You would do a U-turn in the desert. Jesus is asking you to turn from your sin and turn to him, and he will forgive you and restore you. God, we all need to see you. Reveal yourself to us today and the days ahead. Thank you that you are the God who sees us. You are El Roy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.